Section two of Guelphs and Ghibellines by Oscar Browning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two Guelphs and Ghibellines at Zolino da Romano, early Venice. After the death of Frederick the Second, an interval of twenty three years passed without the appointment of a king of the Romans from twelve fifty to twelve seventy three and an interval of sixty years without the recognition of an emperor in italy twelve fifty to thirteen o nine the country therefore was left to govern itself but it was not at all the less divided by discords and distracted by dissensions the parties of guelph and ghibelline raged as fiercely as if the lances of the german hosts were ever glimmering on the crest of the alps or as if the Lombard leagues were in constant watchfulness against an impending foe. These two party names occur again and again in history, until the time when both factions were crushed beneath the heel of a common enemy. They represented divergent principles, although in the heat of conflict all question of principle was too often disregarded. The origin of these two parties has already been mentioned we will now attempt to define the ideas which they embodied speaking generally the ghibellines were the party of the emperor and the guelphs the party of the pope the ghibellines were on the side of authority or sometimes of oppression the guelphs were on the side of liberty and self-government again the ghibellines were the supporters of an universal empire of which italy was to be the head the guelphs were on the side of national life and national individuality the refrain of the garibaldian war song which bids the stranger to leave the plains of italy might have been the battle cry of the guelph if these definitions could be considered as exhaustive there would be little doubt as to the side to which our sympathy should be given. Frederick II, although he was in early life supported by a pope, was in heart a Ghibelline. The later measures of his government, especially after the year 1232, were directed to the entire destruction of the feudal state and the reduction of his subjects to the condition of a multitude destitute of will but profitable to the exchequer he was penetrated with saracenic views of organization he cared little for liberty or for constitutional government on the other hand thomas aquinas the great philosopher of the roman church sketched out a perfect constitution in which the prince was supported by an upper house while a lower house of representatives was chosen by the people and they were secured against oppression by the right of revolution we should thus expect all patriots to be guelphs and the ghibelline party to be composed of men who were too spiritless to resist despotic power or too selfish to surrender it but on the other hand we must never forget that dante was a ghibelline no man ever yearned more passionately for the advent of a saviour from beyond the alps no man ever more persistently endeavoured to restrain the papacy within the limits of its spiritual power therefore we see that the question is not a simple one the party of the guelphs was subject to many weaknesses 
it had an ecclesiastic at its head the national party was exposed to all the stormy dissensions and complicated intrigues which afflicted the papal court first among the causes of these troubles was the natural confusion between religious and civil sanctions under the papal government every crime was a sin every offender against the state was liable to be punished by excommunication again the pope though he represented the unity of italy did not scruple to call in the assistance of the foreigner three times did three several charleses of the house of france cross the alps and devastate the plains of italy to fight the battles of the pontiff the church was more anxious for the accomplishment of its private ends than for the liberation of italian territory machiavelli describes the views of the best political thinkers of his age when he argues that the truest hope of regeneration for italy lies in the exclusion of the clergy from civil offices it was a constant weakness to the guelph party that it had the pope as its leader but in the course of a minute and fretful struggle the objects of both parties had been confused and half forgotten they had become mere party cries mixed with a hundred associations of ancestral hatreds and inherited feuds in some cities the parties had received new names in others one or other of them had split into sections as divergent and as bitter as the dissensions of the parent stocks in the fourteenth century there was scarcely a city in italy which was not distracted by the bloodthirsty quarrels of a traditional vendetta it might well be urged who should still this raging sea but the commanding voice of caesar what force should weld these chaotic elements into a living organism except the strong hand of imperial power this was the view of dante he who had seen nothing but order and harmony in the spheres of paradise preferred even tyranny to the confusion which reminded him of the turmoils of the circles of hell the history of florence at this time offers a good example of the struggles of the two parties the city although its sympathies were mainly guelph was divided into two factions frederick had driven out the guelph and established the ghibelline in its place immediately after his death the guelph exiles were recalled this was a time as the historian volani tells us of great simplicity of manners a simplicity which dante is constantly regretting on october twentieth twelve fifty even before the death of the emperor the people rose in rebellion against the power of the nobles they met in the square before the church of santa croce the westminster abbey of florence the burial place of its illustrious dead deposed the podesta established a government consisting of a signoria of twelve members two chosen from each of the six wards of the town renewable every two months they then formed a national militia to defend their independence they pulled down the fortresses of the nobles and built out of the materials a public palace for their magistrates the present bargello the chapel in which contains what is believed to be the portrait of dante painted by giotto after the return of the guelph exiles 
steps were taken to gain over the neighbouring cities to the Guelph cause. Luca was the only town which had given its adherence to that party. Pistoia, Siena, Pisa, Volterra were Ghibelline. The success of this movement was extremely rapid. Pistoia soon submitted, the Pisans were driven within their walls, and the territory of Siena was overrun. In memory of these events, the Florentines coined for the first time their golden florin, stamped with the emblem of the giglio or lily. Though changed in weight and fineness, the florin existed until within the memory of men now living. The year 1254, which the Florentines call the year of victories, witnessed the final triumph over Siena, Pisa, and Volterra. Ten years later, the epoch of vengeance arrived. In 1258, the Ghibelline nobles who had lived peaceably under the popular government were driven out because they were suspected of conspiracy. They had recourse to Manfred, king of Sicily, the natural son of Frederick II, who had assumed the crown as the representative of his nephew, Conradin. The Ghibelline exiles, the chief of whom was Farinata degli Uberti, had taken refuge in Siena, a city always true to the Ghibelline cause. Florence declared war against the town. Manfred sent a small company of a hundred men to its assistance. By the machinations of Farinata, this puny force was cut to pieces, and the banner of the King of Sicily was trailed in the dust. The honor of Manfred was engaged, and he dispatched a large contingent to avenge the insult. Farinata again displayed his adroitness by stirring up the Florentines to a premature attack. On October 4th, 1260, was fought the Battle of Montaperti, sometimes called the Battle of the Arvia, the first great shock of arms between Guelphs and Ghibellines. On the Florentine side were collected soldiers from all the Guelph cities, Pistoia, Prato, San Miniato, San Gemignano, and Colle di Valdelza. This party was superior in numbers to their enemies, but they were surprised and surrounded by the Germans of Manfred and the Ghibelline exiles whom they had expelled. The hand which bore the standard of Florence was cleft in two by the sword of a traitor. The Guelph army was utterly defeated. Florence alone lost 2,500 men. There was scarcely a family which had not to lament the loss of one of its members. Of the Guelph army, 10,000 were killed, and many more were taken prisoners. The condition of Florence after this defeat was terrible indeed. It was sunk in hopeless apathy and despair. The citizens were equally afraid of treachery from within and vengeance from without. Nine days after the battle, the chiefs of the Guelph party left the city with their wives and children and were scattered amongst the neighboring cities. Similar scenes took place within the walls of their allied towns. Luca still remained unconquered and received the fragments of the defeated party. The Ghibelline exiles re-entered Florence, and the city took the oath of allegiance to Manfred. In the meantime, a diet of representatives from Ghibelline cities came together at Empoli, 
and deliberated on the best means of consolidating their interests the envoys of pisa and venice urged that there was only one way of securing a lasting peace to destroy the city which had made itself the nursing mother of the guelphs and to raise florence to the ground then farinata degli uberti to whom the victory was due rose proud and disdainful as dante saw him afterwards in the pit of hell and cried know that if i remained alone amongst all the men of florence i would not suffer my country to be destroyed and that if it were necessary to die a thousand deaths for her a thousand deaths would i willingly die he then left the assembly the ghibellines rejected the base proposal of their allies and confined themselves to establishing in florence a militia of a thousand men under the command of guido novello whom they had made podesta of florence whilst the towns of tuscany were thus falling under the power of the ghibellines the northern plains of lombardy and of the valley of the po were forgetting the noble traditions of the lombard league the most prominent figure in this part of italy at this time was ezzelino da romano lord of padua in twelve fifty he was fifty-six years of age and had reigned for twenty-five years he had married the daughter of frederick the second the world has probably never seen so barbarous a monster he had no regular system of government or administration but attempted to found an empire by wholesale murder one of the first acts of the new pope alexander the fourth in twelve fifty five was to proclaim a crusade against him and to call upon all good christians to hunt him down like a wild beast the cause was indeed a worthy one after the death of frederick ezzelino had thrown aside what shreds of decency that hitherto veiled his actions padua had become a charnel house when his victims had died in his prisons ezzelino sent their corpses to their native towns to be beheaded in the market-place nobles were slain by his satellites in crowds their bodies cut in pieces and burnt the whole town resounded with the groans of the tortured and the dying every kind of excellence fell a victim to his fury birth wealth learning piety beauty and promise were held to be sufficient cause to justify a disgraceful death the war against ezzelino began in twelve fifty six venice placed herself at the head of the crusade ezzelino had made himself master of verona vicenza padua feltre and belluno padua was captured by a coup de main ezzelino repaid himself for this insult by a terrible revenge a third of his army consisted of soldiers levied either in padua itself or in the surrounding districts by a cruel stratagem he persuaded these men to surrender themselves threw them into prison and put them all to death the war continued for several years ezzelino depended on the assistance of the lombard nobles but they were gradually estranged by his cruelty and faithlessness after taking the castle of priola situated between bassano and vicenza he condemned all the inhabitants men women and children lay and cleric to the same punishment he put out their eyes cut off their noses and their legs 
and sent them to crawl mutilated about the country and beg for alms. At length, in 1259, Ezzelino was taken prisoner at Cassano after being wounded and died by his own hands. All the towns which had been subjected to his tyranny submitted to the Pope and to the Guelphic League. Although this danger had been got rid of, no town in the northern plains of Italy except Venice was able to establish a durable republic. The poet tells us that liberty has two voices, one of the sea and the other of the mountains. Freedom dwells upon the heights and not upon the plains. The plains of Lombardy were peculiarly suited to the evolutions of cavalry, and cavalry was especially the arm of the nobles, as infantry was of the citizens in the towns. Hence the great towns, Milan, Verona, and Padua, were no sooner free from one master than they fell under the dominion of another. This encroachment was also assisted by the fact that the towns were obliged to allow themselves to be defended by some nobles of their choice against the attack of a robber chieftain who might swoop down upon them from the mountains. They were obliged to oppose cavalry of their own to the cavalry of their enemies. We find the power of more than one of these houses raised upon the ruins of the authority of Ezzelino. The house of della Torre was established at Milan to be succeeded in its turn by the houses of Visconti and Sforza. Verona now committed itself to the family of della Scala, who reigned with unsullied glory for more than two centuries, who offered an asylum to the exiled Dante, and gave a scaliger to scholarship. Ferrara entrusted itself to the house of Este, that illustrious line linked with the fortunes of the poet Tasso, and through Brunswick with the throne of England. On the whole, the Guelph party gained but little by the overthrow of Ezzelino. The Pope found himself encompassed by Ghibellines on the south and on the north, and our succeeding narrative will show what steps he took to recover his power and to rescue himself from his enemies. It will now be convenient to give a sketch of the early history of Venice, which had an existence apart from the other towns of northern Italy. It knew of no struggles between Ghibellines and Guelphs, as its attention was mainly directed to the commerce of the East. Founded as an offshoot from Aquileia amongst the islands and lagoons at the head of the Adriatic Gulf, it was at first governed as a part of the Eastern Empire. The power of the Exarchate of Ravenna now became too weak to control it, and the isolated community elected rulers or doges of its own. At first these elections showed a strong tendency to be continued in the same family, and precautions were taken to prevent the office from becoming hereditary. In 1032, two councillors were placed on the side of the doge, whose consent should be necessary to any determination which he might take. Their number was afterwards increased to six, one for each ward of the city, and there were added to the government the three heads of the Quarantia, or Great Court of Justice. The doge was from the first elected for life. This body of ten formed the chief executive and administrative power of the Republic. The Great Council, the Gran Concilio, representing the people, 
consisted in its earliest form of 480 members. It was chosen by a method of double election. The people chose two electors from each sestiere, or ward. Each of these twelve chose forty councillors from his own part of the city. Not more than four members might be taken from the same family. It has already been stated that the administration of justice was committed to a quarantia, or a council of forty, established for the first time in 1179. Besides the said cabinet of twelve, and the popular body nearly as large as our House of Commons, there was an intermediate senate or council of pregadi. There, as their name implies, had been at first persons prayed, or invited by the doge, to assist him with their counsel and advice. In 1229 they became a regular part of the constitution. Their number was then fixed at sixty, and they were nominated by the great council. Their business was to prepare measures for the great council and to watch over commercial and foreign affairs. Such were the features of the ordinary constitution. On grave and important occasions, an appeal was made to the people as a whole. The popular assembly was called Arengo at Venice and Parliamento at Florence. By gradual steps, the power of the Arengo was abolished, that of the Grand Concilio confirmed, and that of the Doge limited in every direction, until the state was eventually governed by a close oligarchy of prosperous merchants. We may anticipate chronologers by completing the sketch of the development of the Venetian constitution. In 1229, two new sets of officers were appointed, the Cinque Correttori della Promissione Ducale, whose duty it was to revise the oath taken by the Doge at his election, and the three Inquisitori del Doge Defunto, whose business was to inquire into the conduct of the late Doge, and if necessary to condemn his memory and to fine his heirs. The duty of laying these matters before the High Court was committed to public prosecutors, the avogadori of the Republic. The promise of the Doge was a species of national charter which might be amended at each avoidance of the office. In 1172, the election of the Doge had been transferred from the people to Gran Concilio. The council delegated for this purpose, first 24 and then 40 members, reduced by lot to 11. In the middle of the 13th century, the method of the election of the Doge became more complicated. The members of the Grand Council, who were over 30 years of age, drew from a bag balls partly gilt and partly silvered. The 30 who drew the gilded balls again cast lots for nine of their number, whose business it was to appoint 40 men of different families, seven out of the nine voices being necessary for a choice. These forty drew lots for twelve of their number, the twelve chose twenty-five, each of whom required to have nine votes for his election, the five and twenty cast lots for nine, the nine chose forty-five, each of whom needed seven voices for his election. This body of five and forty, after taking an oath to make a choice according to their consciences, threw the names of the persons whom they wished to appoint doge into a vessel. If the votes were found to be scattering, they repeated the process, until twenty-five were given for one person who was then declared elected. Such was the jealous nature of this close oligarchy. The Venetians took but a moderate interest in the affairs of Italy. 
in the twelfth century dandolo had established himself at constantinople and in twelve twenty five it was debated whether the capital of the republic should not be transferred to the shores of the bosphorus this was not carried but many islands of the aegean sea were partitioned as fiefs amongst noble families and crete especially was formed into an image of the mother-state with a doge of its own and a hierarchy of privileged nobles in sixteen sixty one when crete was captured by the turks the candian nobles were transferred to the libro d'oro the golden book the register of the venetian nobility a war broke out between venice and genoa which had the effect of detaching venice from the guelph cause and allying her with the ghibelline pisa this new alliance was an additional reason why the pope should strain every nerve to preserve his party and should employ the somewhat questionable methods which will be treated of in the ensuing chapter End of section two